running out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone And the guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell Hello everyone my name is Leonie Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. My guest this week is Cassie Cresswell, a parent advocate in Chicago and executive director of Illinois Families for Public Schools who will explain how her organization, along with other parents, teachers, and advocates, have ended mayoral control and the state-funded voucher program. I'm hoping that you will have some inspiration and advice for us here in New York City, where hearings on mayoral control are starting next month, as the system will either lapse at the end of June, be renewed, or be reformed by the state legislature. But first, some local news. New York City class size data for this year was released last week, and class sizes increased at all grade levels as we had feared. For elementary and middle schools, this was the second year in a row of class size increases. The overall trend makes it very unlikely that New York City will be able to comply with the new class size law that requires 40% of classes next year capped at no more than 20 kids per class in grades K through 3, no more than 23 kids per class in grades 4 through 8, and no more than 25 students per class in core academic high school classes. That is, if New York City does not radically change their policies in terms of school budgeting, enrollment, and capital planning. Instead of making the increases to school budgets that will be necessary to comply with the law, DOE is continuing to cut school budgets, with over 600 schools seeing mid-year cuts this year, and the mayor is proposing an immediate cut of 5% in the DOE budget in in addition, ramping up to a 15% cut for next year of over $2 billion, which if enacted would inevitably lead to far higher class size averages next year. All this despite the fact that the Department of Education received over $500 million in extra state funds this school year. During my last show, I spoke about the fact that the administration also plans to cut $2 billion from the capital plan for new school construction, which means if these cuts are implemented, it will be impossible in overcrowded districts for the city to build enough schools to cap class sizes to the mandated levels within five years as the law requires. But now let's turn to the national political scene where there's some good education news to report regarding the recent elections. A pro-public school governor of Kentucky, Andy Brashear, was reelected, defeating a pro-privatization candidate. And the Virginia legislature will have a pro-public school majority in both houses. In school board elections throughout the country, from Iowa to Pennsylvania to the state of Washington, voters rejected the extremist, book-censoring candidates endorsed by the right-wing groups Mom for Liberty and the 1776 Project. In the words of the National Education Association, quote, campaigns focused on vouchers and culture war issues like book bans, censoring the curriculum, and attacks on the LGBTQ community fell flat, while candidates who pledged to work with educators, students, and parents to support and improve public schools succeeded. 
I'll put some news links in the resources section of the WBAI website and the podcast for you to take a look at. But it was a good night for supporters of public schools. Now I'd like to introduce my special guest and good friend, Cassie Cresswell, Executive Director of Illinois for Public Schools, who will share with us some other good news from her home state and city, Chicago. Cassie, welcome to Talk Out of School. Hi, Lenny. Thanks so much for having me. So, Cassie, you've had a huge victory recently, helping to get vouchers in Illinois to lapse. Illinois is the first state in the country that is rolling back vouchers. Can you tell us something about this program and how it got started? Um, so it was uh, created back in 2017. Uh, it was supposed to be officially a pilot program that would sunset after five years. Um, our legislature very quietly extended it by a year. Um, and it was created after years of pushing for vouchers in Illinois under sort of you know, drastic, unusual political circumstances. We had a Republican governor at the time who was essentially holding the state hostage. There, we did not have a budget. Um, and it, it like dragged on more than a year that we didn't have a budget for the whole state. Uh, there was also a really historic push to change how schools are funded in Illinois, changing the funding formula. Um, and really this was sort of put in in the compromise that would then get the governor's support for um, basically starting school funding again and redoing the school formula. But his demand was that we have this privatization program. Um, and when it was created, sort of out of the gate, it was one of the you know largest voucher programs in the country, like at its initial size. Um, now it's been dwarfed by these more recent uh ESA programs, especially around the, the country, um, but it still swept, you know, $250 million out of our general revenue fund over the last five years. Um, we're now in the sixth year and it is definitely great that it's going to end. Can you describe some of the schools that this program helped fund and the sort of education that they provided? Uh, I mean, so... There are certainly some high-quality schools in the program. Those tended to be schools that don't need taxpayer subsidies to, to flourish or to thrive. Um, for example, the University of Chicago has a lab school that was taking voucher money. Um, you know, there are uh, very well-known uh, wealthy Catholic school, St. Ignatius, here in the city was getting voucher money, places that don't need taxpayer subsidies, for sure. Um, but... The lack of oversight and regulation uh, and accountability in the program means that there were also some of the sorts of schools that we see, especially in bigger, longer lasting budget programs, um, where you have these essentially kind of pop up in a strip mall type schools. And those really were happening here in Illinois. Um, and Clearly, the way we set up this program was not enough to rule out these really low-quality educational options. Uh, and really something that was very widespread um, across the whole program was schools that were discriminating against students in protected classes, students with disabilities, English language learners, LGBTQ plus students, um, and also families and staff. Um, just in terms of all the schools that we had looked at, uh, we found more than 
85 schools that had written policies that discriminated against LGBTQ plus students. Um, and that's out of about 500 schools. So really essentially one in uh, five schools had these transphobic and homophobic policies on the books. Probably almost, I would say the majority of schools were discriminating against students with disabilities um, because I think four out of the six uh, Catholic dioceses in the state have explicit policies saying schools can discriminate against students with disabilities. And that covers by far the most, you know, the bulk of the schools in the program. So, Weren't there some also fundamentalist uh, Christian schools that really um, teach creationism rather than real science? Uh, yeah, there's definitely schools teaching, you know, creationist science, um, using uh, educational materials that certainly in other states have been found to be extremely low quality. So Bob Jones University, for example, has a educational press. Um, their course materials are in use in some of the voucher schools in Illinois. Um, Abeka is another one. Um, another you barely, you can barely call it educational. It's called uh, Accelerated Christian Education, and it is a series of packets, the PACE system, which literally stands for Packets of Accelerated Christian Education. Um, kids basically sit in cubbies and fill out these packets, you know, 12 packets per year per course topic. Um, and yes, that that's in use at one of the Illinois voucher schools. And some of them said that if the family doesn't adhere to strict religious tenets, that they would not be um, welcome in their school as well. Is that right? Uh, yeah, some schools have religious requirements just to apply um, or want like a letter from your pastor, um, want to know that at least one parent is a born-again Christian. Um, there's a lot of the Catholic schools uh, give priority admissions to Catholic students and then give a special tuition discount to members of the uh, parish. And, you know, a recent thing in uh, one of the dioceses uh, in Illinois is that they were requiring families to attend church uh, if they were getting that uh, discount uh, for school. And so if you weren't showing up at least half the time or more, uh, you were going to lose your discount. So yes, lots of uh, religious belief requirements, essentially. So your organization, Illinois Families for Public Schools, helped lead the battle against the vouchers by creating really a broad-based coalition of many groups, including some that don't focus exclusively on education. Is that right? And can you explain what groups you, you pulled into the coalition and how you did this? Um, well, we really ended up, I think, with uh, like 70 groups overall and a whole different array of, of types of groups. So state issue advocacy uh, orgs like um, the Illinois State Conference of the NAACP, uh, ACLU of Illinois, the League of Women Voters of Illinois uh, was really instrumental in working on this issue um, lots of different uh, education advocacy related groups, including all the major teachers unions here in Illinois, uh, Illinois Federation for Teachers, uh, Illinois Education Association, and the Chicago Teachers Union, um, and also some school management lobbying organizations that represent like school districts and administrators. Um, so kind of both sides of management and labor in uh, 
the public school system. Um, lots of really local political organizations uh, from the progressive uh, end of the spectrum, um, including, say, ward-level IPOs, um, some of the local indivisible organizations like Invisible Indivisible Chicago. Um, so really a whole array and then lots of community organizations that have education as one of their issues, if not their prime issue. Um, and that really covered a, a broad array we also had disability rights organizations and LGBTQ plus rights organizations. And I think that uh, really spoke to how, it, what a, a big factor this discrimination is in terms of people's objection to using our public dollars in this way. Speaking of privatization, what's the situation now with charter schools in Chicago? Um, we have a lot and there they ha- the number hasn't been growing, um, in part because of a contract stipulation in the Chicago Teachers Union's contract most recently that basically we can't have any additional uh, charter schools and basically the number of students in schools needs to stay the same. Um, so that has helped. I mean, also just the fact that like the until this year, CPS's enrollment um, has been shrinking. And so clearly, finally, the idea that opening new schools was not, did not make sense financially, uh, has, you know, bled into the idea that we shouldn't be opening charter schools at the same time that we are closing public schools run by the district. Um, are there charter schools that are closing as well? Um, there have been charter schools that have been closing and, there's also been some fights over closing some and, you know, basically court challenges to closing them. Um, Urban prep is notably one of those. Uh, and we still have schools that are run by now the state charter commission is defunct, but running those schools has been taken over by the state board of ed Um there was, there has been, there's sort of a quasi expansion that's happening where, um, one of the Google and associated charter schools, actually one of the very first, um, that was, uh, put under the control of the state charter commission because the district did not want to open it. Um, so back in 2013, it opened, it got permission to go all the way through 12th grade, but it only opened an elementary school at the time. And then just basically, this year, um, they bought a building and are now expanding into the high school grades um, and essentially got approval from the State Board of Ed to do that in sort of what I feel like is a, you know, a violation of the spirit of the State Charter Commission law, uh, which said, you know, now that we're closing the State Charter Commission, we can't be overruling uh, school district decisions about not opening new charters. And essentially, you know, this is essentially a new school that did not exist before, even if the school officially got approval to expand all the way into those grades back in 2013. So we had a char- have a charter cap here that New York City more or less has reached, even though now they're um, allowing new more of these zombie charters to replace the charters that closed and never op- or never opened. But there was a lawsuit about a new high school 
that was being counted as an existing school because it was an expansion, even though it was going to be run by two different charter chains. And the teachers union brought it to court and lost. So that some of the same tricks that they're getting around, um, you know, here in New York City as, as they're getting around in, in, in Chicago. But we are seeing charter schools close for lack of students. So hopefully that will, that will continue. Now, um, the NEA in their article about the recent elections said that in Illinois, 90% of pro public education candidates in Illinois won their school board elections, um, a few weeks ago. Is that something you folks have been tracking as well? Um, yeah, our school board elections were actually part of the municipal elections this spring. So uh, around the state, school board elections were held the first week in April. Um, and there, that was definitely something that we were trying to do some uh, assistance for communities that were reaching out and concerned about right-wing extremists running for school board, uh, especially in the, the suburban Collar counties uh, around Chicago, um, and really statewide and in those collar counties, the extremist candidates did not have a lot of electoral success in April. So we, you know, essentially it was kind of a preview of what we saw uh, this fall in other parts of the country. Um, and there's, with a couple exceptions, where they swept um, their school boards. Mostly, you know, a few people may have won, but uh, really not a lot of success. So now I'd like to switch to the topic of mayoral control. Here in New York City, mayoral control will be either renewed, ended, or reformed by the legislature by the end of June. And the state education department is starting to hold hearings starting next month in December um, to hear from parents, educators, and others about how they feel about the governance system and what they might like to see in its place. I'll put the links to the dates and locations for these hearings in the resources section of our podcast and on the WBAI website. But meanwhile, Chicago was one of the first big cities to adopt this essentially autocratic system in 1994. Um, but then in 2021, parents, teachers, and advocates helped get legislation passed to return to an elected school board in Chicago. Is that right? Um, yes, although actually Chicago has never actually had an elected school board. So before the mayoral, like full mayoral control was put into place in uh, the law was passed in 1995, there were kind of a variety of systems, um, mostly involving basically the city council and the mayor kind of combining uh, to appoint school board members. So this is an experiment in democracy when uh, we finally have a fully elected board here. So can you explain what mayor control meant for your schools and how you, your group and others managed to overturn it? Um, I mean, it, it meant that those school board members who, you know, really about half of our property taxes in the city of Chicago go to the Chicago public schools. Um, so in terms of levying taxes, making expenditures, and then making all these decisions uh, about what our school system is going to be like, they were in the hands of appointed people who only answered to the mayor. Um, and the electorate, you know, elects a new mayor every uh, four years, but there's 
many other issues on the ballot essentially embodied in that mayoral candidate set. And so to really, you know, determine how the schools are being run was not in the hands of the voters um, and not certainly not in the hands of community and parents um, of the students who were in the schools. So it meant that, you know, you would go to board of ed meetings and you would be faced with members who were not even interested in what you were saying, much less going to truly listen to the voices of the community. Uh, and, you know, that what meant decades of policies that were harming school communities um, and, you know, a major expansion in privately run charter schools at the same time uh, that they were closing district schools um, and really just a lot of chaos and also a lot of, uh, you know, kind of experimenting with things that we then see nationwide in terms of high stakes use of testing, um, you know, piloting things like uh, holding kids back in third, sixth and ninth grade based on a single test score um, and, you know, just a general uh, pushing towards what is, you know, we kind of generally know as corporate ed reform. And that's really what the unelected board of education had done for that whole era underneath the the appointment of the mayor. And Arnie Duncan came out of your school system as, as CEO. Is that right? Yes. And, you know, really, I think a lot of the stuff that we saw, uh, Chicago Public Schools experimenting with um, was then, you know, put on the national stage uh, because uh, Duncan became the U.S. Secretary of Education. So how did you manage to get the law changed in in um, 2021 and convince the legislature to phase in an elected school board, especially since you'd never had it before? Um, I mean, really, parents and community were fighting for this long before uh, 2021. Um, the Even before, um, I, I think the first time it was put on the ballot as a non-binding referenda uh, was 2012. That was sort of, that was like when I got involved um, and people had already been uh, pushing um, like, Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, for example, since probably like 2006, uh, because there was already, you know, school closures happening and disinvestment in their community happening under the mayoral appointed board. Um, so, you know, it really, I think, became a citywide movement already, even uh, before the mass closures in 2013. Um, and it was already very popular uh, in terms of, you know, that 2012 year when it was on the ballot, um, the mayor blocked it from being sort of a citywide question. And we actually had to go precinct precinct to get it on people's ballots. Um, then in 2015, it was on the ballot again. Um, at, so what, uh, was, what was the result of the referendum in 2012 and 2015? Um, I think the 2012 vote was something around like 80% approval that voters wanted an elected board. Um, and then 2015, it may have even been a little higher. Um, that was more on, it wasn't 
citywide that time either, but it was on a lot of board ballots. Uh, and so, yes, like it's, I, it was like 80, maybe even 90% ultimately, like more popular than, I mean, that's like universal essentially to find something that polls that well is, uh, rare. So. And, and was the, you, was the, uh, CTU, the teachers union, uh, critical in this fight, do you think? Um, yeah, definitely. It was, I mean, really the CTU played a big role and there were community organizations all around the city, uh, that were working, you know, in their community and at the kind of like this very hyper local level, uh, to organize, to push for like these ballot referenda, um, and to push on their own legislators, um, and there were basically, I think starting 2015, there was a bill introduced pretty much every session in the Illinois General Assembly. Um, and these bills passed the House kind of over and over again. Like it was, it was at a certain point you were like, this is like a joke. Of course, this bill is going to pass the House. And then it would move over to this Illinois State Senate and die. Uh, under the Senate president at the time, John Cullerton. Uh, and finally. Were they, was it Democratic control of both houses? Yep. But, um, the, but the head of the Senate was more conservative. <laughs> is that right? The majority leader? Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, like you, you if you know something's going to die in the other chamber, you can always pass it in yours. And then, you know, for whatever convenient political thing it is to say that it's passed in your own chamber. Um, I mean, it, this wasn't like a totally, it wasn't like it had no utility to pass those bills during those years. Um, a lot of the working out of arguments on it and, you know, what should an elected school board look like? What could get a bipartisan vote, like what would actually get some Republican votes um, was part of that. Um, and so the final shape that we saw in the 2021 uh, version was really shaped by what happened in those years and in the negotiations then and in the input from uh, the community organizations and the teachers union about what an elected board should look like. So to explain to us what the process is supposed to be and what the board is supposed to look like over the next few years. Well, some of that, unfortunately, remains to be determined, um, even though the first elections should take place um, now, less than a year from now, um, uh, in the general election in, uh, like I think it's November 4th next year. Um, so the size of the board uh, is supposed to ultimately be 20 members elected from districts and one uh, at-large board president. Um, so there's been a lot of complaints and controversy around that. I think some of it is just essentially concern trolling from people who don't want to see democracy running the public schools in Chicago at all. Um, the thing is, and this is closely related to the fact that um, the voter population in Chicago does not demographically look much like the school family population. So the schools are um, basically majority students of color um, and really only like 
10% white students, whereas the voting population is more like two-thirds uh, black and brown and one-third white. Um, and so, you know, if you have very large districts, say you only have seven members of your school board, um, you are really not going to have a lot of districts uh, with black and brown representation because of how segregated the city is. And then if you're, you know, following the Voting Rights Act and the sorts of uh, constraints on when you draw districts and making sure that, you know, every voter uh, is fairly represented, you really cannot have um, a bunch of big districts and really have a lot of representation for families of color in the city. Um, and so even with 20 districts, that's difficult, um, but it is a little more doable. Um, and so Unfortunately, at the time the bill was passed back in 2021, the mayor at that point, uh, Lori Lightfoot, really did not want to see an elected school board. Um, the compromise that sort of got through the legislature at that point and was kind of the only politically viable thing at the time was to phase in uh, the mayoral or the lack of mayoral control. So the original plan was that 10 seats would be elected next fall in 2024, um, and the other 11 would still be appointed by the mayor, and then two years later, the other 11 would be elected. So we'd have a fully elected board finally seated in January 2027. Uh, the details on how you would divide the city up into 20 districts but only elect 10 members next fall were basically left out of the uh, legislative language, and so those are being ironed out now. Um, and they are still not fully ironed out. And unfortunately, um, basically they're part of drawing the maps. And so we also do not have a map of the districts. Um, and we do not exactly know like how things will actually work 12 months from now. And, and isn't there a legislature who's proposing that all the school board members actually be elected next fall instead? Is there a chance of that happening? Um, yeah, because that legislator is the Senate president, um, Don Herman. So a different Senate president than was blocking the elected school board for all those years. Uh, this was a very sudden uh, idea of his. Like It kind of came out of nowhere the second week of our veto session. Um, the House... Uh, leader on the elected school board was completely blindsided by it. Basically, um, the Chicago Teachers Union was surprised to hear that uh, Herman wanted to suddenly elect all 20 next fall um, or 20 of the 21 next fall. Um, and certainly the, I think the community organization advocates did not expect to, to see that either. Um, and so, I mean, it's sort of a trade-off like, had we actually uh, gotten the maps drawn by the deadline, which was supposed to be July 1st, 2023, and we had a, you know, if we already knew where the districts were now, I think people would be somewhat more comfortable with that idea. But, you know, certainly all of us who've been pushing for democracy and democratic governance structures, you know, we want a fully elected board, right? But the idea that you should do this in, you know, a period that quite possibly will be 
quite a bit less than 12 months by the time it actually passes the General Assembly, I think should make everyone anxious. And, you know, that's... When not- are the, when are the, you said there was a deadline to have the maps of the districts drawn in July, but they haven't been drawn yet. So what's going on with that? Um, I mean, the the deadline to draw the maps was set when the bill was passed. So like, you know, May 2021, it was like, okay, let's get these maps done by July 2023. So there was two years to draw those maps. That did not happen. Basically, suddenly in April, uh, General Assembly remembered that it needed to draw the maps. <laughs> and, you know, uh, um, their initial drafts were not great. Um, and so, I mean, it, it was bad not to have a map at the end of the spring session, but it, it could have been a pretty terrible map. Um, so, yeah, so they extended their deadline till this coming April. So they actually have till April 2024 to basically pass the maps now. That is not good. Like, I would hope that there is going to be the political will to get these decisions done early in the session, because the longer you wait, you know, for truly grassroots candidates to know whether they are even a constituent in a district that they should run in, um, you know, pushing that map out further and further is not good. Um, and like, there's no primaries, there's no runoff in these elections. So especially if there are 20 all held at once, um, that's, kind of a lot of chaos. Uh, and this is, you know, it's a serious job. Um, and, you know, it's a big transition for the district. When you have mayoral control, the mayor is essentially, you know, got a foot in each thing, the city department, the budget and the school budget. And so we definitely saw things where it was like, oh, gosh, Hmm, who should pay for the police officers in the school this year? Well, this year, let's put it under the city budget to make the school budget look a little better or vice versa. Um, and so those what are called financial entanglements are not completely thought out how we're going to resolve all those. Um, and yeah, it, it's really the, the further this gets out and closer it gets to the election that we resolve these things. Uh, the more nerve-wracking it is in terms of whether good policy is going to happen. So um, I think I want to open it up to callers. If, if any of you have questions for Cassie or ideas about what mayoral control should look like in New York City or a different governance system should look like in New York City, uh, please call us at 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. But let's... Um, stick to what's happening in Chicago, and then uh, generally the issue of mayoral control and what people would like to see um, it and in, in how it might be reformed or replaced by another governance system. Um, another issue that I, that I heard uh, was under discussion that I'd like to hear your viewpoint in and has sometimes been discussed here in New York City is whether non-citizens should be allowed to vote for these uh, school board members. Because, of course, there are a lot of um, immigrant and, and non-documented and non, um, non-citizen non uh, children of non-citizens in the public schools. So what's what's your thought on that? And what's the discussion on that like been in, um, in Chicago? 
so this has actually been under discussion by advocates for the elected board for a very long time. Um, unfortunately, I think it was taken out, um, you know, probably several years uh, before the bill was actually passed back in 2021, because it was one of those things where if you needed Republican votes to pass, you were not going to get uh, Republican support for non-citizen voting. Um, and so that it was essentially politically, like legislatively, a non-starter at that point. Um, and even not necessarily just on the Republican side of the aisle, but in sort of more swing districts uh, in the suburbs. And so, you know, that understandably made uh, some community organizations that wanted an elected school board um, unhappy um, to the point where some of them actually pulled out of the coalition to try to push for an elected board. Um, we do have a legislator that is interested in spearheading this um, still. And, you know, I think it's San Francisco that has some non-citizen voting uh, already. It's difficult because even if you allow it, um, because of issues about essentially data privacy, voters who um, are not citizens, so whether they're undocumented or not, um, can be understandably worried about exercising their, their right to vote. Uh, so there's a lot of tricky issues in that regard. But certainly, you know, the especially the Latino population in Chicago, um, the voting population does not necessarily match the uh, resident population. And so if you really want people to have you know, representation, especially parents of school children, it's something that you really need to have true democracy. So another issue that is really, I think, very important is the question of whether school board members would be paid. Because to be a school board member in a place like Chicago or New York, it really does take a, a certain investment of time and energy. And without getting paid, it's really hard for uh, a people who aren't wealthy or supported by their spouses to invest that amount of time. What's what's your thought on that? And what's the discussion been on that issue? Um, our organization is very supportive of the idea that we should compensate school board members. Um, we do see school board members around the country uh, getting compensation. Uh, some states actually compensate all board members, usually some sort of sliding scale, depending on how big and complex your school district is. Um, LA compensates their school board members really pretty well. Uh, and there has been legislation uh, introduced to do that for the Chicago board. Here, I think the political uh, fight would be that uh, non-Chicago legislators would be unhappy compensating Chicago board members when the rest of the state uh, has school board members that aren't being compensated, in which case I would say that we should consider compensating all of them. Like what we have seen here in Illinois for the last couple of years is that this is a very stressful job. Um, it's not actually that easy to get qualified good people to run. Um, we have school board members who were getting, you know, threats of physical violence over the last couple of years. 
Um, and, you know, some of the uh, larger school districts in Illinois outside of Chicago, you know, they're the size, they have a budget or the size of the district, you know, like a state senator's district or something. We pay our state senators, we pay our city council members, we pay our Cook County board members. Um, and it's, you know, it really limits who is available to run um, and really basically says, you know, sorry to working class and poor uh, uh, candidates. And like, you'll just have to figure out how to make that work. And I think that just does not, you know, provide for a great candidate pool in that case. So we have some callers who's called in. Um, let's take the first call. A caller, what's your name and what's your question or concern about mayoral control? Uh, Brad? Hello? Hi. Yes, yeah, hi, I, we can hear you. I'm going to keep it brief and it's simple. I just, across the board, um, I don't think a cop should be a mayor. And I, I, I'd like to say I don't have anything against cops when they're all acting properly. Uh but this, I just think there's so many aspects of Mayor Adams' everything that just don't work for everything. And uh, then to turn around and say something like when he you know, hired someone close to him in the early part of his uh, term, to turn around and say, well, you know, what we can do is pray. Well, then don't get in the mayor's office because you're not doing the mayor job. That's just something different. Praying is going to, isn't going to fix New York City. The mayor right. can. Um, that's it in a nutshell. But I think there might be more to uh, him. Let's see what's going on over there. And I'm going to okay. keep it that brief for the next people. Thank you. You're All doing right. a good Thank job. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, one of the issues that was of special interest and concern early on in the debate over whether to have mayoral control here in New York City was that since the mayor sets the budget, he should run the schools. And if he didn't have this control, he might refuse to fund our schools properly. Yet uh, our mayor, Eric Adams, has repeatedly cut funding for schools since he was elected and plans to make even more radical cuts next year. Cassie, I read that the Chicago Public Schools is also facing a big financial shortfall due to lapsing federal COVID aid. And yet the public school board expects to increase property taxes um, for next year to make up part of that shortfall. So your school board does have independent taxing authority. Is that right? Yes. Um, you- so, yeah, they can levy taxes. They are, there's essentially a limit to how much you can raise them at any given year. Um, but that was essentially... One of our arguments to say that we deserve to have an elected board because we have this body that can levy taxes. And so it's a taxation without representation issue to have them appointed by the mayor and not have them accountable at the ballot box. That's so interesting. Um, We've never had that with our school board. Um, um, We have another caller on the line, I believe. Caller, uh, could you say your name, where you're calling from and what you're question or concern is about mayoral control of our schools? Good evening. Is this me? Yes. Good evening. Okay. My thoughts are, and I'm a former Board of Education employee, I feel like a person who governed the schools should be a person in education. 
it should be a secretary and not the governor. I don't think, and I'm not trying to put him down in no kind of way, but he is not competent to manage an education system. That needs to be under a person who's working there at the administrative level. Now, just going to say the immigrants or non-citizens paying, having to vote, people that work in this city pay taxes. It's our tax money that really facilitate their managing or running this government. No matter who they are, what their citizenship status is, if they're paying taxes, they deserve the right to vote, too, because their tax money is was helping the people that did really manage and govern the, the, the city or the state. So they should be able to vote. Thank you very much for hearing me. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's a very good point that a lot of immigrants do pay taxes, and they have their kids in the school, and they are, you know, members of our community. So... I believe that when we had community school boards in New York City, which had a variety of powers and, and relatively um, lost a lot of authority over the years um, for each community school district, uh, parents were allowed to vote whether they were citizens or not for those community school boards. So that's another really important issue. Um, in general, Cassie, uh, what is the financial situation that Chicago public schools is facing, does your state uh, really fund the schools to the extent that it should? And and what, what, you know, what future do you have in terms of the funding? Um, we are grossly underfunded. Um, Chicago is not one of the absolute worst funded districts in the state uh, because we do actually have a lot of property wealth in the city. Um, so you can, you know, uh, raise some amount of property taxes to, to fund schools on like some communities where there's just, you know, even a massively high property tax can't possibly provide the funds needed to run a school system. Um, but we're still in pretty dire straits here in Chicago and we are quite underfunded by the state. So we are really, you know, it's about an annual shortfall of $1.2 billion um, that the state should be providing to, to CPS that we don't get. Um, and, you know, we, we changed how the formula uh, distributes new dollars that uh, the state allocates to public schools back in 2017, but we're not putting enough dollars into that. And the truth is things were already so inequitable. Um, and we really had a, you know, hold harmless policy for how much districts were already getting, but we were already giving wealthy districts more than poor districts. So there are some, you know, as we put new dollars into the system and we have put a couple, uh, billion in new state funding in over these last, uh, six years. But we're still, you know, at a state level, we're about $5 billion away from fully funding our schools. And even though as we put new dollars in, they go to the neediest places, when you're that far behind, you know, you, it takes a very long time to catch up. The rate that we're adding new dollars in is so slow that we won't actually get to full funding in the state if we continue at that rate until like 2054. Um, so that is not... 
not acceptable. You know, Chicago 2054 is, not... is beyond our lifetimes in many ways. Yeah, right? the truth is like what the, the, the General <laughs> Assembly said in 2017 is we are going to get to full funding in 2027. And, you know, that is just a couple of fiscal years away at this point. And we are we're not there and we're not going to be putting enough money in to get there. Part of the problem in Illinois is that we have a structural deficit because we don't have a graduated income tax and we need to change our state constitution to even get one. Um, we made an attempt to do that back in uh, 2020 and it failed. Um, that it's really, really needed. Um, and, you know, the, the Chicago metro area is essentially as wealthy as something like, you know, Sweden, if you're doing kind of the equivalent of a, a gross domestic product per capita. Um, so it is ridiculous that we are underfunding not just our schools, but all of our social services as much as we are. Callers, we invite you to call in at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Another reason that many of us here in New York City were jealous of you in Chicago was the election of your mayor. Um, who's a former teacher. So you had a former teacher elected. We had a former cop elected. Tell me how he's doing. Um, I think there's growing pains. I think people would generally say, I mean, it is, Chicago has had a lot of very clout heavy, long-lasting mayors, right? So, you know, we had two mayors daily um, covering... Father and son. Father and son covering decades um, when, uh, you know, Mayor Daley did not run again. We had Rahm Emanuel, who uh, came into office with a lot of, you know, wielding a lot of political clout and money. Um, so to come uh, into office as basically, you know, a part of a popular movement, um, in large part, a grassroots movement, um, and, you know, funded by a union, essentially, movement. That's different than, you know, coming in with the city's business class behind you, and really the city's business class lined up behind Paul Ballas. Um, and so, you know, it's... Uh, we should say his name, Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson. So, so yeah, it's a very different um, thing to, you know, not come in where you can essentially bankroll uh, your allies and keep control of city council because you can wield that, you know, power over their offices later um, that we really saw under Rahm Emanuel and... Uh, the, both so, the so he's on a learning curve, is that what you're saying? And I, I hear that you have some of the same issues with migrants as we have in New York, which is stressful and 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 potentially expensive. Is that right? Uh, yeah, and that's been the political climate has been, you know, actually very ugly. And I think we saw a lot of uh, cross race, cross-ethnicity boundaries um, to form a coalition that put Brandon Johnson into office. Um, and the essentially the financial stress and the social stress of 
um, basically what these uh, red governors around the country are doing by, you know, taking advantage of the fact that we do not have a sensible uh, federal response to immigration and, you know, basically taking care of refugees and uh, those seeking asylum here um, and, you know, exploiting that by sending people um, right. to cities without preparation. So we, ha- we, I think we have time for one more caller. Caller, could you yes. say your name and quickly state what your point or question is? Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, yeah, my, Mitch, I'm calling from Brooklyn. Uh, I was told by somebody that works in the school system, I asked her about the accelerated schools, Bronx Science, the other high-performing schools. How many people, how many children of color was entered this year, she told me, although you have uh, a majority black and brown school system, only seven, seven black students were admitted into these schools. Something is wrong here. All you well, have it's in true there- that a very, very small percentage of black and Latinx students are admitted to the specialized high schools, especially Stuyvesant, I think is where you may have said only seven black students. And that's unfortunately controlled by the state legislature, which passed a law requiring this high stakes test as the sole admissions criteria, which has never been evaluated for racial bias. But that's a little bit off the subject. I wanted really to thank Cassie for being with us um, tonight and talking about Chicago, which faces so many of the same problems that we do. And yet the political um Climate there seems to be different in terms of them making progress on certain issues that we are still not even close to making. I mean, we haven't had a real uh, bill to change mayoral control or put in an elected school board yet in uh, over 20 years of mayoral control. So we're looking very interestingly and hoping for the best that it works out really well for Chicago. So it might provide us um with a push to go in a similar direction. But thank you for being with us tonight, Cassie, and hope you might come back again soon. Yes, thanks so much, Lainey. <laughs> this is Lainey Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio. Our show is available as a podcast if you miss the live version or want to recommend it to a friend. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show Talk out of school by calling 212-209-2950. There's no other show on the air that deeply delves into the issues affecting our schools like this one. You can also contribute online at WBAI.org. We really need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run any ads We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Up in the morning and out to school, the teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and